Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Um, 
And I'm going to start this series uh, talking about the intimacy in the Dharma with where most things start in Buddhism, which is with intimacy with ourselves, right? Most things in Buddhism, when we're learning about practices, they almost always start with this one, right? So you're learning compassion practice, you start with compassion for yourself. If you're learning about loving kindness or metta, you start with developing loving kindness or metta for yourself. And the same is true for this idea of intimacy, right? We, we need to figure out how we cultivate intimacy with ourselves. What does that look like? And what are the sort of hindrances or the, the things that get in, way, in the way of intimacy with ourselves? And that's sort of what I'm going to try and talk about today. Um, So I think that we all kind of have this idea of who we are, right? Um, often based on social constructs and ideas that other people gave us about what that means. And then there's the sort of ways in which <clears throat> our psychology or the, the, the our upbringing and, and other things sort of come to play into all of that as well, right? And, um, and then it sort of makes this amalgamation that we call ourselves. And then we come to Buddhism, and Buddhism says, oh, throw that all away, right? Like, I think a lot of people come to Buddhism and, they're and they hear this message of no self, and they get confused. Because when the Buddha said there is no self, the self that he's talking about, I, I hesitate, because I don't like saying that this is what he's saying. But from what I've read from other teachers, and the way that I understand the idea of anatta, which is no self, is that there's no permanent, unchanging, independent self. And the great thing about Buddhism is that Buddhism sort of invites us to hold paradoxes. Invites us to hold two seemingly conflicting ideas at the same time. So on one hand, there's no independent, unchanging self. On the other hand, I'm me, whatever me is, right? Like I wake up in the morning, I take a shit, I do the things, right? Like I feed this body, I'm the one who gets sick. I show up to my appointments, I show up to work, I'm in relationship with people, I'm in relationship inside of community. are true. So how do we understand that? How do we use that to help us develop an understanding of what it means to be us, ourselves? And for me, that's the question about how do I develop intimacy, right? Like, it's how do I understand and hold these two conflicting ideas in harmony. 
And for me, what I've found over my practice life has been that there's two really important pieces that I cultivate. One is, I'm not so convinced. I have lots of ideas about myself and who I'm supposed to be or how I want to be in the world and all of these opinions, right? But on a regular basis, I'm sort of asking myself, is that true? Is it true for me? You know, I have lots of ideas about what it means to be queer in the United States. But when I look at my experience being queer in the United States, on a regular basis, it sort of gets redefined. When I think about what it means to be white in America, as I've grown and as I've gone through my life, that has changed. Because I started to recognize that there isn't a place that's fixed in any of those social constructs or psychologies. And so when I can ask myself, well, what does that mean for me today, right? What does it mean for me in 2023 to be queer? It means a lot of things. And a lot of times, I, I really don't know. Like, I can't articulate exactly what it means. I know what it looks like for me to perform my queerness out loud, right? But if you ask me to articulate it, I don't know. And part of that's because I'm in relationship with a lot of people who have different ideas about what it means to be queer in the United States based on their experience. And these are people I love and support and I'm connected to and so and in, in community with. And so my ideas aren't so selfish now about what it means to be queer because it comes with all kinds of pieces and intersectionalities and understandings because I, it's, it's not just about me. But I'm the only one that can influence this one. Right? Like my sphere of influence is limited to right here. And so I get to start to just question things. So when I was younger and I first came out, <clears throat> um, I hung out with a lot of butch lesbians. They kind of adopted me um, and taught me how to be queer. Now, part of that comes because men have always sort of terrified me, and, uh, and it wasn't until much later in my life that I kind of could relax and do more than just fuck around with them. And so I have these relationships with all these women, and queer women, and, and so my understanding of my queer identity 
was shaped and formed by these relationships and who I was in community with, which often included things like politics and, and markers of, of a feminist ideology. AIDS happens. And it begins to shift again because I start to see my female friends who are starting to take care of us and I'm losing friends that I had who were male and I'm going to lots and lots of funerals. I also stopped drinking so that changes a lot of things. And so my identity or my understanding of my queerness changed again including this question about gender and what it means for me to be a man. And sometime around the mid-80s, I started to question, and part of that was because some of my women friends had recognized that they weren't women and started to take steps to move away from being women. And that made me question, well, what is a man and what does it look like and how do I want to be a man? Am I a man? A couple of my boyfriends decided that they also had trans experience and became women. And so that also made me sort of question, like, well, what am I and how do I? And so even at that time, I sort of was questioning and, and not clear on the concept of masculinity couple that with an understanding that patriarchy is kind of fucked up and hurts men as much as it does women and, and that I started to unpack that a little bit and try to figure out what that looks like for me. So I, 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 I'm always curious, right? So now this is 2023 and I still sort of ask myself on a regular basis, is that true? Right? When I'm thinking about what I like, do I really like that? Or is that just something somebody told me I'm supposed to like? Or do I really feel this way about this certain thing? Or is it something that somebody's given me? Or is it something I think that I'm supposed to do? Which is something I'm noticing more and more and more in my life. I have this tendency to form an idea about who I'm supposed to be because, you know, I wear a funny robe or I have a certain title and I do certain things and I'm supposed to look and act and be a certain way. And then I think, why? Who says that? Whose idea was that? Is that true for me? So there's this curiosity that's important when we start to think about building intimacy with ourselves. To not be so convinced about our opinions about ourselves or other people's opinions about us. Or this is the way I've always been. The other piece is a little harder, which is vulnerability. This invitation to let your heart be broken and open. To let yourself feel the feelings that you're having while you're having them requires us to be super vulnerable 
Because a lot of times the feelings that we're feeling are not ones we want to be feeling. This me, right? So what is it to, to live in this state of vulnerability? To live in this place of really listening to the answers that come with this curiosity and let that register and have the feelings that come with that. So I'll give an example. I oftentimes, rather than admit and acknowledge that I'm lonely or feeling isolated, I get hungry, horny, or preoccupied, like I just become enmeshed in some kind of media or something. Because lonely or isolated is painful, and I often can't do anything about it. And also, it's, it, for me, I've noticed that it's also one of those covering emotions. So there's often something else underneath the loneliness that takes me a little while to land on. So loneliness, loneliness in a way, becomes a sort of intermediate stage. And so can I begin to be vulnerable, to let myself feel the loneliness and the isolation so that I can get to what is underneath that? What's the story? Not so much the, the opinions and ideas about that feeling, but what's it like to be me experiencing that experience? What's the nature of this experience? And that's the invitation of vulnerability, is to get to this place of like looking at not so much my stories about these things, but what's the nature of it to be me? When you're training to be a chaplain, one of the gifts of chaplaincy is that you're invited to sort of, when you're with somebody, to have two conversations going on. On one hand, you're having this conversation with a person. So you're interacting with your patient, right? And they're talking, and you're responding, and, and there's this communication going on. Simultaneously, you're invited to have this other conversation with yourself that sort of sits in the back of your mind and is like, well, what's happening to me in this process? What's being stirred up for me? And the reason this is important is so that whatever is happening for you doesn't bleed into this experience and cause harm to another person that you're providing spiritual care for. Right? So you develop the skills to sort of watch yourself and, and notice the boundaries that might be uh, coming near, or you notice the feelings that you might be having of discomfort. Um, oftentimes in a new interaction with someone who's a white man, I often, who's angry, 
I often have to remind myself that it's okay, that I'm safe here, because my experience with white straight men who are angry is not so great. But if I go running from the room or bleed my fear over into this experience, that person's not going to be able to find their healing. And I'm not going to be able to serve them. So being able to sort of have this conversation with myself that just sort of says, okay, yes, you're afraid. It's okay to be afraid. You don't have to run away. This will pass. Just stay here. But that conversation can't happen if I'm not vulnerable, if I'm not open-hearted, if I'm trying to be something in this experience rather than being in the experience itself. And we can think about it when we're having interactions on our per in our personal life, right? With our partners, when we're having sex, when we're thinking about having sex, all of it, right? With our best friends, with our worst enemies. We can start to think about, well, what's happening for me in this interaction? It was really interesting for me around um, the late 90s, I started to question what felt good to me sexually. I had to start thinking about, well, do I really like that? Or was that just some thing that I created in order to cultivate connection with people? Also, our bodies change as we grow older. And so even still, like, what are the things that are enjoyable to me? Often is different based on how my body feels in the moment. I live in chronic pain, so depending on what's hurting, <laughs> it's going to affect, you know, how I want to interact with people. And how long it's been, like, there's so much that goes into just my ability to interface in the world. that I have to constantly sort of ask, is that true? How do I feel about that? Does that, do I really like that? Oh wait, no, that's kind of annoying me. So to be curious, but then also be vulnerable to hear the answers. Be vulnerable enough to sit in the discomfort when the answer isn't what we think we want to hear. What does it mean to be me in this moment? What experience am I having and what's it like to have that experience? So if you're comfortable, I'd like to just sort of invite you to take a moment, just check in with yourself. Maybe close your eyes or don't close your eyes. <clears throat> And if it helps, you can start by just noticing the physicality of your body. What's happening in this physical realm? 
and then check in emotionally, what's happening emotionally. What thoughts are coming up, what ideas are coming up. And see if you can look at what's it like to have that experience. What's the nature of that? Is it sharp? Or dull? Does it have a physical sensation? What's that physical sensation like? What's it like to be me having this experience? And that, in the words of my really good friend, uh, Lou Hartman, now do that for 30 years. <laughs> I like to leave lots of time and opportunity for people to ask questions. Um, and this seems like a good spot for that. And I, I kind of want to ask Renee if they want to add anything to anything. Hmm. Yeah, I think the thing I'm reflecting on is listening to you is just like, I'm wondering if we could translate mindfulness as intimacy, if it's not simply everything is intimacy. So that's something, that, the question that's been arising for me. Yeah. Well, and I really have grown to dislike the word mindfulness because it's been turned into a product that gets marketed to us and fed back to us. And it's separated from Buddhist practice a lot, right? And so I try not to use that. So I think that, yeah, this idea of mindfulness can be translated to intimacy, because we are trying to cultivate intimacy with the world, right, and our place in it. So it's a great, I really like, um, I was reading an article today, actually, uh, on the ride over uh, from NPR, a Buddhist monastery in New Jersey, and the, the None was asked what their favorite Buddhist word was, and they said kampa, which is uh, to tremble with. <laughs> and I thought, if there's not a better de definition of mindfulness and intimacy, it would be to tremble with. So, yeah, thank you for that. Hi, Hi. remind me of your name. Bob. Hi, Bob. Hi. So in, in taking in that point, so it is, if I can remember what I was just thinking, um, the trembling, the arising, mm -hmm. the, then the reaching out, and then sort of acknowledging self and other. Mm -hmm. um, so is it sort of, it is that, it is that connection we're always looking, or I'm always looking for, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> I am always looking for a connection or belonging. Or, and, and those are all 
layering on definitions to the immediate experience. Right. So how in the practice is really residing in that trembling awareness of the moment. Yeah. And and the recognition that one, we're already in communion with each other, mm-hmm. right? We arise with and because of each other, right? That's the nature of interdependent being. So that's that one piece of there's no separation here. And and so the intimacy comes when I can experience that place because I'm authentic in this place. Right? So, so you sort of recognize your own container in, in, in the, as a point? Exactly. Okay. In this sort of, uh, in Zen we often talk about Indra's net, right? And we're all these little jewels in Indra's net reflecting each other. But I have to recognize my own jewelness in order to have the ability to reflect back to other people. And so, in order to really feel that interconnectedness with all things, I have to really get comfortable of being connected to myself. Of this place, in this body, at this moment. And intimate with that, so that I can get intimate with all the rest of the arising in that moment. So the fear of not, the fear of questioning, has to be released as just a, a natural curiosity of self. And, and recognizing that fear is part of it. Fears. Fear. Is, oh, fear. Fear is part of it. Like if, right. it, <laughs> I once had a friend tell me, if you're not afraid, you're not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> because you're not quite on the edge, right? Like, if I'm too comfortable, I'm probably not practicing hard enough. So that's not to say we have to always be miserable. (laughs) But at the same time, I kind of want to not be so convinced, not be so certain of the footing I put underneath myself. So, you know, sometimes the best thing to happen is have that rug pulled up from underneath us. And can I let myself fall? and be afraid, and do it anyway. There's somebody on the line? Sure. Tell us your name and... Hi, I'm Richard. Hi, Richard. Uh, you're uh, talking about challenging your uh, beliefs about your feelings. Uh, what you believe about yourself, and do I like that because I'm supposed to like that, made me think about uh, agreements that we made with ourselves that Don Miguel Ruiz talks about in the Four Agreements. Uh, is that similar to challenging the agreements we've made in our lives? Yeah, I, I think that... Um, the difficulty with agreements are that they're great for the moment that we make them. But they, that if they, if they stay in perpetuity, we're stuck there at the place we were at when we made that agreement. So I think it's important to make agreements with ourselves and with the world around us, but also 
question them, does that still hold for me, this agreement, or do I need to make a new agreement? You know, I, um, I've gotten in the habit of every year reviewing my end-of-life documents and, and all of the things that I have in case I die or get sick. And I review them every year, and I sit down with the person who I work with, who's supposed to take care of all these things for me when I can't take care of them myself, and we go over them, usually over dinner, and we have a really lovely dinner together. But it does sort of, you know, the agreements I made when we started this process 10 years ago is different than the agreements we make now. So agreements are great, and the four agreements are true, but we have to question the nature of that and our relationship to that so that we're not stuck in the place we were when we first understood them. Did that make sense? Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Yes? I may have missed this, but is there a working definition of intimacy? Hmm. <laughs> I think for me right now, my, I, I will say my first, my very first response was absolutely not. <laughs> but then, you know, as I'm often prone to do, I thought about it a minute. And I think for me in today, in, in my universe, there's, there's this idea of connection with the immediacy of the moment in an honest way. So I think that in order to be intimate with ourselves or anyone else, right, like we have to be authentic in the experience of that moment, either with myself or the other person. So that's my second answer. Yeah. That's the best I've got right now. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Thank you. What's your name? George. Hi, George. Um, I'm currently in a six-week men's circle group, and it's on intimacy. And the leader of the group uh, defined the word breaking it down into into me I see. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to offer that. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, like I said in the beginning, I think like all things in Buddhist practice, it all got to, you got to start here whenever, whatever we're doing, it's got to start here for it to have any real value. I teach 
stuff and on sex and sexuality. And one of the things I like to tell people is to notice the moments when you're having intimate contact with another person. Notice when you're not in the room or when they're not in the room. And just think about all the places in our life where we've been with someone, either sexually or just in conversation, and not even been in the room. For whatever reason, right? And if I can avoid that, what are the things that help me not have that experience anymore? That's what I want. That's what I want out of my practice, even. Like, I've sat on the cushion and not been in the room, right? I've not been in my body, not been in my experience. So, yeah, if I can just keep finding my way back to that, where I can be in the room at the same time with myself.
but we can use the physicality of the experience to bring us present and then find the presence in that present. My teacher likes to say, experience the experience you're experiencing while you're experiencing it. And I think that we start that by starting in the body. It's also one of the things that we always have with us, so it doesn't require any special peace, <laughs> right? There's no, I don't need special equipment. I always have this with me. So I can meditate on the bus or the airplane or the this or the, you know, it just, I can do it wherever. Thank you. How about any more online? And online, if you want to ask in a, uh, a confident or not uh, anonymous way, you can just chat and cast, or somebody could read it out loud. In about two minutes. Well, I thank you for Simon. Simon is okay. I have a question. Yeah, hi, uh, my name is Simon. Um, thank you so much for your talk today. Um, I am, uh, I, um, I guess my question is when you are overwhelmed with the experience that you're having, um, how, um, how to lean into that or whether to lean into it or how to decide <laughs> to be curious or, um, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's something that came to mind. I appreciate that. I, I have an anxiety problem, and so I get overwhelmed really easy. And I think that for me, the, one of the tools I've gotten really well is to just stop. One, it's amazing that I can notice now that I'm overwhelmed. Because it used to be that I would be overwhelmed, but then try to pretend that I wasn't. And I became super rigid, and I was convinced that I knew all the answers. Now I just stop. And oftentimes, I'll even ask the person I'm with, to, can we just stop for a minute? I need a moment. Because I, oftentimes, the overwhelm comes because I'm not, I'm not in my own body. I'm not in the room. I'm, I'm thinking about other things. I've got this thing to do, and oh my gosh, I, you know, I only have 10 more minutes left, and am I on time, and did I say all the right things? Did I cover every idea I had, blah, blah, blah. Like, and, and that can really get in the way. So if I can stop and just take a moment, and you'd be amazed at what happens if you go to your friends when you're in the middle of something, and you go, hey, can we just stop for a minute? Can we all just take a breath? 
it happens a lot in board meetings. Like people's opinions get all you know riled up, and everybody's convinced. And I often will just say, "Can we just stop for a minute and not talk for just a minute? Just take a breath." And interesting things can come out of that quiet. So that's what I like. Stopping is a really good practice, particularly when I'm anxious or overwhelmed. Did that help? Yes, it did. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all. I really appreciate your being here. And uh, I will, unfortunately, I won't be with you except on Zoom next week. I'll be in Texas, and it's really hard to get here from Texas. <laughs> so, uh, but I will be here. So, Renee is giving the talk, and I'm going to be. Uh, just attending, and then in two weeks, Renee and I will be in conversation together. Here. Here, in person. Yes. So, uh, thank you. Forward to continuing the conversation. Yes, and Renee's going to knock it out of the park tomorrow, or next week, so please be here. So, uh, we, we look forward to continuing the, the series. Uh, do we have any announcements? Well, no, you're... All right. uh, We're co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> a little confusion. We have abundance of food, <laughs> and, uh, food out there. So if anybody would like to stay in chat and enjoy com some camaraderie, uh, please do so, uh, those here. And uh, if you can, I'll be standing here with a bowl, uh, down a bowl, and asking for generosity to help maintain this organization, uh, rent this beautiful temple that we can meet in, to have the Zoom and the technical stuff that we have, um, to put out our newsletter that mainly goes to incarcerated individuals. And um, the, uh, there's usually about a couple of us get together around 12.30 at the door and go out to dinner. You're more than welcome to join. And um, I think that's about it, isn't it? Oh, I got my things. Uh, yeah, okay. I think that's, the, that's my announcement. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, a lot of you have heard me announce this before, but I'm co-leading a group to India on November 11th through the 25th, and there are six days left to get the early bird special, <laughs> save $300. Uh, there's already a couple of GBF Sangha going, so if anyone's interested, you could email me at jefflindemoon at gmail.com or at the GBF uh, mail link uh, to get more information. Thanks. Any other announcements? Uh, so I just wanted to mention that uh, our speaker next week in part two of the series will be Renee Rivera. Renee is a meditation teacher, restorative justice facilitator, and leader work, working and learning in all the spaces in between race gender, and other perceived binaries as a queer, mixed-race, trans man. So um, please join us uh, next week for part two. Uh, at this point, uh, Diane, would you like to lead us in the dedication?
extension of merit? Or? Sure. All right. Uh, we, we stand. Okay. So, <laughs> May our intention equally extend to every being in place. May we all be free of suffering in the roots of suffering. May we all know ease and peace. May we, with all beings, find Buddha's way. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.